All four questions that we've asked together over this month have been tender questions, asked often by tender people, and we have found the Lord has given us very tender answers to them, and we pray for that even once more now. Uh, Really, the nature of it is that there are many people who are wrestling with all these things we're talking about this month. And if I just put it down in a nutshell, I just figured, why wait for everyone to come into pastoral counseling and ask these questions? Why not we just deal with it right now in front of everybody? And so we have one last question to ask today, and that deals with the sense of lingering guilt that some of us have, because some of us have more than we need, And there are others who have so little, and that can lead the heart to feel guilty. The Lord would have that resolved this morning. The Lord would have that met with a good and kind word this morning. So we're asking the question, if I have more than I need, uh, should I feel guilty about that? Uh, Though the Word of God would not have you feel guilty about that, there are many reasons, especially in our surroundings, that we might feel guilty for having extra Probably the most obvious is that we do see a lot of need around us, and sometimes we don't know what to do to help those who are in need. Uh, For instance, most of you have probably seen those who are asking for money on County Line Road at the traffic light right up the road here. And the experience for most of us is that we pull up to the traffic light, we see the person there with the cardboard sign and their story written on it, And most of us have a good idea of the fact that there are some earnest people in need there and some mix of swindlers and liars who don't really need our money. And we're unsure what would happen if we gave them money. And so we don't know what to do. And so for most of us, we pull up to the light, see the person, aren't sure what to do, and the light turns green and you go on. And that can leave you feeling, "Mm, did did I do the right thing? Like, I'm not so sure about that, right? Uh, On top of that, the scriptures have some words written to the rich that are difficult. Uh, For instance, it can be hard to interpret the book of James when he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That can be hard to digest, right? And there are other words like that in the scriptures. Uh, Well, what's going on there is that sometimes the Bible will use the word rich to talk not about everyone who has extra, but those who have lots of extra and are maintaining it by oppressing the people who work for them, the rich who oppress the poor. And James goes on to say that. He says, the wages of your laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and their cries have reached the ears of the Lord Most High. So he's not talking to everybody who has extra, he's talking to those who have extra and are defrauding the people who work for them. Many instances like that in the scriptures that if you don't quite take the meaning right can leave you feeling like, wait a minute, is is that about me? And I think this has been worsened in the last few decades because charities have gotten really good at figuring out how to get money out of people. And they have figured out that fear and guilt are very big motivators. Uh, So some of us were joking this morning about the title in the sermon, Should I Feel Guilty If I Have Extra Money? And the joke was, well, I can help you solve that problem, right? Just, Just get rid of the money, right? Well, there are people who would really do that with their advertisements on TV that pull the heartstrings and make you feel guilty for not helping Uh, I remember a friend in college who went to a conference that was about how to help the poor, and she came back zealous and fired up. And she said, did you know that the charity that I'm working with now, we could give 
adequate food, water, shelter, health care, and education to everyone who needs it on earth for $24 billion a year. And I was just stoked. I was like, that's doable. Like, we could solve world poverty this generation. That's incredible. And then she, she scowled and she said, Americans spend $40 billion a year on dog food. You feel the rhetoric? Us lavish Americans with our pets, if only we weren't so greedy, we could have solved world poverty by now. That's the logic. That's the rhetoric. Uh, well, good news. That's, well, maybe not good news, but that statement isn't actually factually true. Uh, there was a charity that was uh, selling that for a while. But the truth is no amount of money and check writing can solve world poverty because it's a complicated problem. If you could do it for $24 billion, Jeff Bezos would have already done it, and Bill Gates would have done it before him. But the fact that both of those men are giving away substantial parts of their fortune and world poverty is still here should tell you it's not the kind of problem you can solve by writing a check. Nevertheless, there are charities out there who would like to turn it that way and make us feel guilty so that we would give. Now, it's good to give to charity, and a lot of those charities are doing very good works, But what we've got to deal with today is the aftermath of some of that, and that is that a lot of us have this lingering sense of guilt. Okay, I have more than I need. There are others in need. I do some things to help those in need, but not a ton. Uh, What do I do with that? And that's where the Lord means to meet us this morning. So if that's you, the first thing I want you to see in the Scriptures is that there are examples of extremely wealthy people who are called righteous in the Bible. Maybe the first one is Abraham, who is called out of the city of Ur, taken to a new land by God, and given along the way very much blessing. He becomes one of the greatest men of the ancient Near East. And all along the way, it says, he believed God, it was counted to him as righteous, Hebrews 11 counts him among the heroes of faith, despite some misdeeds that he did that he received forgiveness for. Just in his example alone, we've got it right there that it is possible to be very wealthy and to be righteous. If that were not enough, there's Job later on, who we're reading about in Sunday school right now. And the first chapter of Job just sets it up really plain. He has 7,000 of this animal, and 3,000 of this, and 10,000 of that, and seven sons, and three daughters. And he, too, is one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. And he is described as a man who fears God, turns away from evil, and holds fast to his integrity. In fact, he's so righteous that the Lord summons Satan to come to his throne and boasts to him about how righteous Job is. So this very wealthy man is righteous enough that the Lord from his heart is boasting to Satan about how righteous he is. It must be possible to be both wealthy and righteous at the same time. We get a smaller example later on in the New Testament when Jesus dies to pay for sins. Uh, His body is taken down from the cross and they aren't sure what to do with it. And a man who is described as a, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea comes and he asks the officials if he can have Jesus' body. And he owns a tomb that no one has ever been laid in before, and he takes Jesus' body and he puts it in this tomb. So he shows generosity to this man that he appears to have faith in, a righteous and wealthy man who's doing righteous things with his wealth. So it's got to be possible to be righteous and wealthy at the same time. Uh, 
We see examples of it in Scripture. So what would that look like? How can we do that? Well, not many of us in this room are exuberantly wealthy, but some of us do have some extra. Some of us got to eat at Popeye's or Chick-fil-A this week because we had a little bit of extra money. And uh, so the question is, uh, what I want to lay before you is there are instructions in the Bible for those of us who have more than we need. And if we follow those instructions, we can hold that extra and enjoy it with a clear conscience and say, it's God who gave this to me. Even better than that, if we aren't following those instructions, and we'll look at them clearly today, uh, for those who have their faith in Christ, there is forgiveness and a way that we, could, we too could walk out of here without a shred of guilt on our hearts. If the Lord convicts you this morning that you're not handling your wealth rightly, it is as simple as confessing that to God, resolving to follow his instructions, and walking out in the peace and comfort of the gospel. So that means everybody here this morning has a way to leave the room without a shred of guilt on our hearts. That's the goodness we find in the gospel, forgiveness for sins and guidance for righteous living. So let me outline the gospel message and then we will read in 1 Timothy 6 God's instructions for those who have extra. The gospel message is simply this. Uh, You've heard me say it already, but we are all sinners before God. Uh, We have all sinned against him and we have this on our hearts and we know in our hearts that those who sin deserve judgment. That's why we judge each other all the time when we do wrong. But the good news is that God from heaven sees this And while he has given the fallen angels no means to come back to him, he has given for men and women and children a way to come back to him. He has sent his son, Jesus, to die paying for sins, to rise from the dead in victory over death, and to hold out his hands saying, anyone who would come to me and trust me, I offer forgiveness for sins and eternal life. You can find that eternal life by trusting in Jesus. You might forgive Forgiveness for all of your sins, no fear of judgment, guidance for life, resurrection from the dead, and eternity with him forever because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, if you want to receive that message today, I call you receive that today, uh, let me or Paul know the next step would be being baptized in his name to show everybody who gathers that you are his now and he has forgiven you. For those of us who live in that message, which is most everybody here, right? We've received that a long time ago. We want to know, how do I live if the Lord gives me extra? Or now that I do have a little extra. And the answer is gathered together very neatly in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. So let's read that together. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Those are the words of our God. Through them, the Spirit gives guidance to any of us who have more than we need or who expect one day that perhaps we will have more than we need. Uh, There are three truths that I want to open up for you in this text this morning and three responses that it calls us to. 
The backstory is that Timothy is Paul's delegate, he is Paul's disciple, who is leading the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is a wealthy town, and many of the people there have come to Christ. And so, as you might expect, there are some wealthy people in the church at Ephesus. And so, very succinctly, Paul gives Timothy some instructions that he, in turn, is to teach the wealthy people in his church. If you've got a little extra, these words are for you. First truth I want to unpack this morning is the reason that you have that extra. Why do I have more than I need? Maybe you've wondered. You have more than you need because God is generous. First truth this morning is that you have a lot because God is generous. And we see that at the end of verse 17. After the comma there, that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Right? That's not richly provides us with all of our needs, but even everything to enjoy above that which we need. So why do you have some things that you don't need that you enjoy and you like? Uh, there's one reason. It's because God in heaven smiles upon you and he's generous to you. And he says, I want this person to have that. I want this person to enjoy that because God's heart in heaven is giving and generous toward you. So to put that really simply... If whatever wealth you have, if you did not sin to get it, then you can say with confidence, God gave it to you and he's glad you have it. When you enjoy the good things that God has given you, he is glad that you are enjoying the good things that God has given you. And this is because, again, God's heart toward you and towards all of us is so remarkably generous. In fact, he doesn't just do this for you, but the scripture says he does this for everyone. He says of us in the Proverbs, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Uh, So that means really plainly that if you have a lot, it's the blessing of the Lord that gave that to you. And when it says he adds no sorrow with it, uh, it's not like cursed gold or something, and if you take it and enjoy it, then some bad thing is going to come because you got the good thing. No, it it doesn't work like that. He gives, and he just gives. He doesn't punish people for receiving good things. And he is this way, not just toward you and I, but toward all of his creatures, all the plants, all the animals, all of the life on this world. Psalm 104 paints this so vividly and beautifully. The streams coming down from the mountains and the flora and fauna sprouting up and all the animals that are receiving their food and all the plants that are receiving their rains. And finally, Psalm 104 says, These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. He gives even the trees more than they need because his heart is generous. Jesus says this about the birds of the air and about the lilies of the field. God cares for them and clothes them and they do not even worry about their needs because God provides for them. And then he says remarkably in another place that God's generosity even extends to his enemies. He is even generous to people that hate him. Uh, Jesus says that he causes the rain to water the crops of the just and the unjust, Uh, that he causes the sun to rise on the good and on the wicked as well. Uh, Those who would use their breath and their life and their energy to curse God's name to his face, he then says, here's a little extra. Here are all your needs, and here is some more. 
Because his heart, even toward his enemies, is abundantly rich and abundantly generous. And so the preachers in Acts say that he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He did this even when we were his enemies to show us how benevolent his heart is toward us. And so if you've got all your needs met, you have that because God has generosity in his heart to you and gave it to you. And if you have more than you need and you're enjoying having more than you need, you have that because God in his heart wants you to have it and enjoy it. So if that is true, if the first truth is that the reason we have so much is because God is generous, what's the first thing that it calls us to do? The first thing this text calls us to do is not to be haughty, not to get prideful. We see that in the beginning of verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. When you have extra, it is tempting to, uh, to forget about God, to think that you don't need God anymore because, hey, I got all I need. Or to think that you are better than other people because I availed myself of this stuff and those other people evidently are not wise enough and smart enough to get this stuff for themselves. And so it is easy to walk around thinking that you don't need God and thinking that you are better than other people. And the scripture's word for that is, is haughty. Riches can tempt you to become haughty. And throughout the scriptures, we have several warnings against this, about this tendency and then against it. Uh, the Proverbs say, for instance, uh, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, uh, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Riches and poverty come with different temptations. If you don't have enough, it becomes very tempting to steal from somebody else to have enough. That's a temptation that many poor face and many others do not face in the same way. Riches come with their own form of temptation too. If you have all you need, it is tempting to think, well, I've got all I need myself, and I don't need God in heaven to provide for me. And it's easy to forget that sense of dependence on him because you have all you need. Uh, Deuteronomy says this, as the people were walking into the promised land where they would be given great riches because of God's abundant provision for them, he says on their way in, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Right? He knows they're going to be tempted to say that. And indeed, they would say that. They would have so much there and they would forget their God. Jesus tells a parable about this as well. He says there was a certain man whose fields produced abundantly, so much that it filled up his barns. And he said, I know what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger barns and I will say to my soul, soul, sit back and ease for you have all your needs met for the rest of your life. And then the Lord appears to that man and says to him, this very night your life will be required of you and what will happen to all of your possessions? And so it is to those who are rich toward themselves and not rich toward God. Those who gain wealth and then forget their need for God. He says that is a path to folly and it is folly itself. We have examples of individuals doing this in the scriptures. 
King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. He was a great and mighty king. God was good to him. And it says of him, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. And therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. So he forgot his need for God. He became proud. But then, good news, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And we have another example in Nebuchadnezzar, who stands in front of Babylon, emperor of Babylon, and he says in his pride, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? Total self-reliance, just forgets his need for God. And the Lord humbles him, makes him to eat grass like a cow on all four for a long time just to teach him humility. And then he says later, those who walk in pride, the Lord is able to humble. This is the way that the heart can naturally go. We can think that we're better than other people and that we don't need God when we have extra the one who gains their wealth uh, through an inheritance, right, has perhaps lived their whole life in a wealthy family, and we do things differently from those other families because we're different from those other families, and I wear different clothes than those other people because we're different from those other people, and now I've grown up, and I've gone to a great college, and I've had a really good life put before me because we're different than those other people, and then I inherit the money, and then I have lots of money, and it can become easy to think we have these things, and those other people don't have those things because we are better than those other people. And in the same way, the one who starts with little but works hard and works in wisdom and is diligent and becomes a self-made wealthy person, founds a business and puts hours of work and sweat into it and grows slowly through good wisdom to have great wealth, it can become tempting to think, I have all of this because I'm smarter than those other people. If if they were as wise as me, they would have worked like I worked and they would have made the savvy moves that I made. And so I have this stuff because I'm better than those other people. And when we begin to lift ourselves in pride over others and say, I have what you don't because I am better than you. I have what I have because of me and not because God has abundantly blessed me. That's what the scripture calls haughty. And it says here, charge them not to be haughty. Church, don't become haughty if you have extra. Instead, we should say if we have more, God has been kind to me in a way that he hasn't been kind to everybody. He has given me much more than I deserve when he has given others only some more than they deserve. It is God in his generosity who gave this to me and I live fully and completely depending on him. So, first truth is we have a lot because, if you have a lot, you have a lot because God gave it to you generously. And so the first thing to do in response is not to become prideful or haughty, but in humility receive a good gift from God and thank Him for it. Let's move to the second truth this text teaches. In the middle of verse 17, riches are called uncertainty. It says not not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And with that word, he is implying a whole lot about what the scriptures teach about riches, particularly that earthly riches crumble. There's 
if the good news, I gave you the good news earlier, God has given you so much more than you need. And it's God who gave you that, right? All those good gifts we have, that's the good news. The bad news is he's going to ask for it all back. Every last bit of it. There is not one earthly gift that lasts forever. Even the highest forms of earthly gift, marriage does not last forever. And so all these good things he has given us, there will come a day when he says, okay, now I take it back. And this is true of our money and our wealth as well. Uh, Perhaps one day the stock market will crash and we will all lose our wealth. Or perhaps at the end of our life, it will come upon us that we can take none of it with us and all of it is going away. One way or another, all of that wealth is fading and so it is not worth placing our trust in. This is true in both the books of Job and in Ecclesiastes, which different parts of our church are studying right now. Uh, In the book of Job, which I mentioned earlier, Job has so much, and then in a moment, it is taken from him. And his response is to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, because he cannot take away a gift that he has not first given. So if God gives gifts, he has the right to take undeserved gifts. Ecclesiastes says essentially the same thing. And if you were one of those ladies who just finished studying Ecclesiastes, you're probably tired of hearing the word meaningless or vanity or however it was that your Bible translated it over and over. All of those gifts are chasing after the wind. They're good and then they're gone. And so if the good gifts like riches are good and then they are gone, we can't place our hope in them. I'll give you one example of this. This will work for like 80% of you. Uh, If you're not on your first smartphone, I think most of you are probably on your second, third, fourth, tenth smartphone by now. Uh, Just think for a minute about your old phone, not your current phone, your old phone. You remember getting that phone? I remember getting my iPhone 6 and it had a fingerprint reader in it, man. It was so, you put your finger on that, you didn't even have to put in your password. It was so awesome. I was so excited about it. And I can't remember with certainty what I did with it when I got a new phone. I think I gave it to a friend. I don't know, but it's gone. And I don't even care where it is. What about your old phone? Does it have a cracked screen now? Is it in a drawer somewhere? Did you send it back to Verizon? You were so excited about it when you first got it. But where did it wind up? Well, it wound up gone because all things either get replaced or they're just gone for good. The same is true for the phone you use now. The same is true for whatever tablet or computer, any of that stuff that you use now. It will wind up in a junk heap. The same is true for the car you drive, the house you live in, your bank account, your stock portfolio. None of it can last forever. It may not even last until tomorrow. And some of you have cracked screens on your phone to prove that to you and to remind you of that. So if none of this stuff lasts forever... The second thing it tells us to do is to set our hope in God and not on riches, right? The grass dies, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
And so Timothy is charged, told to charge those who are wealthy and disturbed, don't put your hope in that stuff, right? It's going to crumble. It's going to fade. Put your hope in God who lasts forever. Uh, This too is one of those messages that is just true over and over again in the scriptures. The Proverbs say, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Psalm 52 speaks of those who insist on trusting in our riches. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. On the other hand, of those of us that trust in the Lord, Psalm 84 says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And so, in the depths of our heart, what we are to trust in is not where the bank account is now, and not the promise of the new job that can provide the money, uh, but in God who richly provides Because he will richly provide today while you have extra. And he will richly provide on the last day of your life when your body is fading. And he will richly provide while your body lays in a grave unable to raise itself. He will still provide for you. And he will richly provide when his son returns and raises you from the dead to eternal life forever. These are things that money cannot do for you. But for those that have their hopes set in God revealed in Jesus Christ, those are the eternal riches that come to us. So we set our hope not on riches, but on God. The way the scripture unfolds that is that because our heart is set on God and not on our riches, the boasting that comes out of our mouth is also not in our riches or in our lack of riches, but on God. Uh, It says that actually in two different places. Jeremiah says, uh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the rich man is told, don't boast in your riches, boast in the fact that you know God. That's the greatest rich that you can have. And then James says on both ends of this, for the poor and the rich, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, it withers the grass, the flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So those who have very little are told not to boast in their poverty, right? Not to make a big show of how poor they are, which is tempting when you're poor. And those who have much are told not to boast in their riches, but to boast in two things, in the fact that they know God, so to boast in God, and in the fact that they are going to fade along with their riches. It tells you actually boast in that, like tell people about that. Be eager to tell people how fleeting all this is and how fleeting your own body is. So that means that the poor brother in Christ 
is not walking around drawing attention intentionally to how poor he is. Now, it's hard to cover it and hide it. You don't need to cover it and hide it. But he's not walking around telling jokes about how poor he is, right? He's not saying, man, we're so poor, ducks throw bread at us, right? Like, he's, he's not saying stuff like that. He's not saying, we're so poor, my kids play Dungeons or Dragons. Like, he's, he's not calling attention to how poor he is. He's saying, when someone says, Oh, can I help you? Like, what what are you going through? He says, let me tell you about Jesus and what he has done for me. Let me tell you about the riches that I have waiting for me in heaven. Now, he may lament, he may weep to his friends, he may weep to God, but he's not boasting in his poverty. He's boasting in the riches he has in Jesus Christ. And the inverse is true for the wealthy man. Uh, He's not boasting about how rich he is. He's not bragging and showing off his possessions. He may have a nice car, but he's not trying to draw attention to the nice car. He may have nice clothes, but he's not trying to draw attention to the nice clothes. And so he may pick you up for a ride in in his Mercedes, and you might be like, whew, sweet car. And you might get in, and the nice, like, cushy leather seat, like, kind of surrounds you, and you feel all nice, and it's seat in his car. And you might say, man, this this is a nice car. And then he might reply with something like, well, it is, and the Lord gave it to me, but one day it's going to be in the same junk heap as all the other cars. But let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Let me tell you about eternal riches in his name. See, there's a wealthy man who's boasting not in his riches, but in the fact that it all fades away and Jesus lasts forever. Whether you have much or little, boast in that. So the second thing we're called to then is to set our hope in God, not in riches, because the earthly riches all fade. Okay, third truth this text teaches us is that good works earn unfading heavenly riches for God's people. We see that in verse 19. So in verse 18, we're charged to do good and be generous. We will get to that in a moment. But 19 says, as you do that, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that is eternity, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So if the bad news is that all the earthly riches are fading, the good news is that there's a trade-in policy. You can trade those earthly riches for unfading heavenly riches in great and multiplied proportion. Uh, Jesus teaches this in many places. He says at one place, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal and moss and, and, and rust destroy. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where thieves do not steal and the, moss, or the, the moths do not eat and the rust does not destroy. Uh, the At one point, a a rich young ruler comes to him and says, I want to follow you. What do I need to do? He says, have you followed all God's commandments? Oh, yes, I have followed all God's commandments. But he sees that this man is not willing to part with his riches. And he says, well, why don't you go and sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor? And then you would have so many riches in heaven. And the rich young man walks away sad because he has great possessions. Jesus teaches this in several different places. In Luke 12, he says, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So it's a point of emphasis for him. When we take the extra we have 
and we bless others with it, we're essentially lending it to God, who will give it back to us in great proportion in eternity with some unfading riches. That's an incredible thought, right? All these things fading, but we can trade them for something that will last forever. And if that's true, then it makes sense that verse 18 in today's text would say in four different ways that we should be really generous with the extra that God has given us. Look at the four different ways it says it in verse 18. They're, they're to do good, there's one. To be rich in good works, there's two. To be generous, there's three. And ready to share, there's four. Basically, four different angles of saying the same thing, right? To be abundant and eager in doing good for others with our excess. And so the last thing it's calling from you today is to give generously to others, especially to Christians who are in need. What do we do with all that wealth? We'd be rich in good works. There are two particular ways this life is described here. Uh, of course, I think most of us understand that the Bible tells us to do good things, right? I think a lot of people think that's the whole message of the Bible. There's more to it than that. It does tell us to do good things, but in the second way it's worded in verse 18, it says to be rich in good works. What does it mean to be rich? It means to have a whole lot of something, like an abundant amount of something, an amount of something that people will say, you don't need that much, like you have a lot more than you need. So to, ha- to be rich in possessions is to just have an overabundance in possessions. To be rich in good works is to be going above and beyond what might be expected of you. To where people who see your checking account statement, and maybe your accountant knows how much you give, might be moved to say, you know you don't have to give away this much, right? You know, like this is a little more than normal to be rich in good works and rich in generosity. To be giving above what we might otherwise give and to do a lot. And then, in the last one, generous and, and ready to share. So that means like a posture that says, I don't really know when the next opportunity is going to come to help somebody, but I know there's going to be one coming, and I'm ready to do it. So there's an eagerness of heart, and there is an abundance in the giving. To those of us that have a lot, that's what the Scripture calls of us. To whom much is given, much is required in return. And so God calls us to just be lavish and generous, especially toward those who are in need. This is something that's generally called of everybody with whatever God has given us. Uh, Hebrews 13, for instance, says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 uh, speaks directly to women who profess the faith. Uh, And it goes into detail about what kind of clothes not to wear. We had a sermon about that recently, actually. And then it says, well, what should she be adorned with? So she should be adorned with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. 
And so that idea of being rich in good works comes back again, right? You might, you might imagine a woman adorned with a crown on her head or a very nice headband and nice earrings and very nice makeup and a very nice pendant and a very expensive looking bracelet and jewelry all over. And you say, that is an adorned woman. Nobody needs all that stuff, but look how much she has. Wow, how beautiful. Uh, well, he essentially wants us to be like this in, in good works, to where somebody might look at what someone is doing and say of her, that is, that is a lot of good that she is doing. Wow, that's striking. That is incredible. The way that I feel when I read Proverbs 31 and I see all the things that this virtuous woman is doing, rich in good works, adorned with good works. Titus calls this of everybody in the church, not just the ladies. Uh, he speaks of Jesus dying for us and he says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Part of the effect of the gospel is to make this people zealous and eager about doing good in the world. That same chapter calls pastors like me to be an example of that. It says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And then a chapter later, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. You get the idea, right? The scripture calls of Christians abundant generosity in the proportion to which he has given to us. He calls us to be rich in good works and to love others. And so the last thing it calls of you then is to be generous. There are several ways that you can do that practically, a lot of them that I probably won't think of right now or tell you. Um, at our church, uh, our members all agree together to tithe, and that's to give a tenth of what the Lord gives us. And then our people are very eager to give offerings above and beyond that, and that's that readiness that I'm talking about, right? Our people are just ready to give and eager to give. Uh, and so some of the ways we do that, uh, we have a benevolence fund here at church, and that is for people who have extra and desire to help the poor. But a lot of times you don't know, okay, who are the people who are in need? How do I help them? What do I do? You just have a little money and you want to give it to them. And so if you give to that fund, we have a few deacons who handle requests from those in need. And they, as wisely as they can, give out that money to those who are in need. That's one way to do it. Uh, you can also help practically people that you see. Uh, I mentioned earlier there are people on County Line Road who have the cardboard signs and are, are asking for money. Uh, what we do in our family is, uh, my wife facilitates most of this, but we just have a whole stack of those you know, paper lunch bags, those, those brown paper bags, uh, and we'll stuff a whole bunch of them at once with a bottle of water, uh, a granola bar, a couple little treats like that, uh, maybe a note. We'll have the kids decorate all the bags. God loves you, and we do too. And we'll put a little info about the church in there so they can have some hope in the gospel. Uh, and we'll just have, in my car, I've got one right now in the center console. Uh, van has a bunch more because the van drives by there more often. And if we have one and we see one of those people, it's just so easy then to go, here you go, right? So practical needs. You're not giving them money and fearing what they might do with it. You're just meeting practical needs, and then the next person might come by and do the same thing, and that person may be able to make it on that. Uh, lots of practical ways that we can help those who are in need, both others in the church uh, and those who are outside of the church. Uh, point in that text, though, is however you do it, be rich in good works. If God has given much to you, give much in return. 
So there's what that text has to say to those of us who have a little extra. And so there are two ways we can respond to this. If you're a believer in Jesus, uh, you may be looking at this and saying, okay, I get it. And I've been taught these things my whole life, and that's largely what I'm doing. I'm more inspired to do it now, but I'll just enjoy the good things he gave to me. I will thank him. I will not become prideful. I won't set my hope in them, and I'll, I'll continue to be generous. And if that's you, you should walk out glad that God has given much to you and eager still to share, right? No shred of guilt in that. Or there may be some today who are looking at this and saying, I do have a lot extra and I don't do this, right? I'm actually kind of prideful with my wealth. I actually kind of hold it and keep it on to myself. Uh, and I want to give you great hope today if that's you. We, we don't teach things that would correct some because we want people to walk out feeling guilty. Uh, no, we want to drive everyone in the room to the grace of Jesus Christ. Because when you know what the standard is, and you know you haven't done it, well, then you have enough clarity to go to God and say, God, I know I was supposed to do this, and I didn't do it. Will you forgive me? And that resolves all of the guilt. So if you're tempted to walk out of here feeling bad, don't don't walk out feeling bad. Confess your sin to God and resolve with his help to walk in righteousness. Do that and cling to the hope of the gospel, and you can walk out rejoicing this morning. So there's the hope that the Lord gives to all of us who have extra. Uh, Let me just say in closing, it has been moving to me as my pastor, as your pastor, uh, to be here at this church and to see the long legacy of generous giving that there is at this church. Uh, Our benevolence fund never lacks. As long as I have been here, there has not been someone with a legitimate need come forward where we have said, we'd love to, but we just don't have the money, right? Because our people are so generous. Uh, I don't know what it is that the Lord has done here, but he's done an incredible work in you, and we should praise him for that. As we go up this evening to Thanksgiving dinner, Uh, my resolution is we will just thank God for that culture of giving here at this church. He's given much to a lot of us. I'm not aware of any really wealthy person that's just bankrolling the place. It looks like it's just a community effort and the Lord has been good to us. Uh, Hear your pastor who loves you commend you for that church. There's a long heritage of that here and I pray the Lord continues to use that. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll have a few moments just to process all this and then we'll move forward.